Now remain standing and pay close attention to the reading of God's Word from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The elders of our church have asked me to uh, preach this morning on the topic of church discipline, and so we'll go to Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he addresses this directly. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is God's holy word. Let us give thanks together. Father, we thank you and praise you for every word that proceeds from your mouth, that your Holy Spirit inspired men to write, that has been preserved for us throughout all the ages, that has been translated into English so that we can hear it and understand it in our own tongue. Father, we give you praise for this, and now we ask you to cause us by that same Spirit to submit ourselves to your word. Fill us with your Spirit that we may hear it and receive it and rejoice in it even as we grieve over the difficult subjects that it contains. Father, correct us and discipline us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, Ken Keithley is a professor of theology over at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest. And he tells a funny story about being invited to preach at a church in Missouri several years ago. It was a First Baptist Church of Kearney, Missouri. And while he was there, he learned the interesting history of this congregation. This congregation once had a pretty famous, or I should say, a pretty infamous church member once upon a time. You see, in the mid-1800s, this church was the home of the outlaw Jesse James and his family. And what's curious is that, uh, well, not only was Jesse James's mother a Sunday school teacher in the church, but Jesse James was a member in good standing when he started robbing banks. When he robbed the bank in Liberty, Missouri, in the middle of the day, and this was known to everybody, everybody knew that he did it and that he's a member of this church. The church met to decide, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this? How do we confront him in love? How do, we, how do we address this? We need to do something about it. It's a public scandal. Everyone's talking. So in the congregational meeting, they nominated two deacons to go talk to Jesse James. Everyone knew that he was living at his mother's place. He was living on his mother's farm. So they, they commissioned two deacons to go visit Jesse James. Now, while they're having this conversation, they also realize, and it's recorded in the minutes, that if we do something, he might just come burn the church down. So this is, this is the fear that they're operating with. Well, the minutes of the very next church business meeting record that it had been a month, and for some strange reason, these two deacons had never quite gotten around <laughs> to visiting Jesse James at his farm. They could never connect. They could never work out, work out a time. And so in the middle of the meeting, Jesse James appeared. He showed up and he politely asked that the church 
remove his name from membership. He didn't want to cause any embarrassment. He didn't want to cause any scandal. He probably, you know, didn't want to give his mother any more grief than she already had. And so he said, please dismiss me from membership. And the church complied. Now, without any declaration that he had, you know, done anything wrong, they just erased his name from membership. Somewhere around the same time, somewhere uh, around the same time that this is going on in Missouri, in the neighboring state of Arkansas, you know, just one state south, another congregation faced a controversy regarding square dancing. What should be going on with regards to square dancing in our community? Should Christians go to the square dances? Now, the question that they argue about was not whether Christians should square dance. I want to be clear about this. That is right out. Nobody, we all understand, nobody's going to square dance, right? The question is, should Christians go to the square dance? That was the matter under review because a bunch of young people had, had been known for going and, and watching the square dance. And after much deliberation, the church finally decided that that was grounds for excommunication, that the, the, the young people who had gone were going to be uh, uh, disciplined, and the whole group was put out of the church. A, a whole group of young people who had gone to a, to a dance as spectators were put out. Now, these two stories represent the extremes of church discipline, the, the extremes of the church failures when it comes to proper exercise of church discipline. And often elders and churches are caught in between the two ditches. Either we are too passive, we are too lax, we're too permissive, or we are too heavy-handed, too legalistic, and applying discipline in ways and in areas where we're really overstepping our bounds, where God is not giving us any jurisdiction over this. Certainly, God has not said anything about uh, the permissiveness of, of square dances. The Bible doesn't uh, address that. Um, and, and, and there's no safety from ridicule. There's no safety from criticism, whichever path you take. If a church practices any kind of church discipline, you run the risk of being called judgmental, mean, harsh, unloving, graceless. These are the kinds of things that you'll be called if you try to practice consistent church discipline. If you don't practice it, well, then you're hypocritical and you're compromised. However, people of God, if we are to obey the Lord and follow the Lord Jesus and his word. We must exercise church discipline when the need arises and do it without prejudice as much as that's possible. We must exercise it consistently without swinging to either extreme, neither neglect or abuse. And then when we do that, we leave all the consequences up to the Lord. What will people say? What will people think of us? I'm not really sure that I, I care at that point because God will vindicate us and he will defend us so long as we are obedient to him. And before we get too far into this, I want to ask, what kind of situation are we talking about? What kinds of situations call for church discipline? The church is called to step into situations wherever there has been a significant lapse of self-discipline. When things are working the way they're supposed to, when, when people are being obedient and, and loving their neighbor and loving the Lord God, there's never any need for discipline. And I'm saying there's never any need for the state to discipline. There's never any need for the family to discipline or the church. God has set up three spheres of human authority. He's uh, given us the state, the human government, and to the state he's given 
the sword, to the family. He set up the family as a, as a sphere of, of human government. And to the family, he's given the rod. And to the church, the church is a sphere of human government, and to the church he's given the keys of the kingdom, which include the power to both join people to the Lord Jesus and to put people outside of the church. Well, in every sphere, whether we're talking about the government, or we're talking about the family, or we're talking about the church, as long as there's a a consistent practice of self-discipline, we have no need to use the rod or the sword or the keys of the kingdom. We, there's no need for that. But of course, as you know, uh, we don't live in that perfect uh, world. We live in a fallen world. And so we are called upon to use the sword. We are called upon to use the rod. We are called upon to use uh, the keys. We are called upon to put people outside of the church. But what we need to know and what we need to hear is that being a disciple of the Lord Jesus means continually exercising self-discipline. If you exercise self-discipline, there is no need for church discipline. Is that clear? That as long as we're disciplining ourselves and we're correcting ourselves and we're mortifying the deeds of the flesh, we're fleeing from temptation, this, this is, a, this is a, a moot point. But, of course, again, you and I both know there are times where men and women fall into sin And not only do we sin against ourselves and we sin against the Lord, but we sin against each other. We offend each other. We injure each other. Well, what happens then? What happens when one member of of Christ's body sins against another member of Christ's body? Well, the overwhelming majority of the time, and I mean the overwhelming majority of the time, when you are sinned against or when you are offended, the right thing to do is nothing right? Love covers a multitude of sins. You let love cover it, you forget about it, and you move on. The overwhelming majority of sins do not call for rebuke. They do not call for correction. They do not call for confrontation or discipline because you and I are always sinning against each other in in little ways, in, in medium ways. We're always sinning against each other. We're failing to love each other either being thoughtless or, or not acting toward each other in respect, or we're, we're just simply not esteeming each other more highly than ourselves as the scriptures require. But even admitting that and even acknowledging that, who could live in an environment, who could live in a community where we're always pointing out each other's flaws and offenses, where we're always exposing each other's weaknesses to harsh criticism and judgment? Who could live with constant henpecking and, and nagging and nitpicking? I tell you what, if you've ever been in a place like that, maybe some of you grew up in a house like that, that is a soul-crushing environment. That is discouraging, that is demotivating, and you want to get out of there as quickly as possible. We can't, we cannot create that kind of environment. So I don't want anybody to listen to anything that I say today and say, okay, I've got a little tin star and I'm, I'm everybody's accountability partner. And so my job now is to point out all the ways you're messing up uh, while ignoring all the ways I'm messing up, right? That's not, that's not what this is about. If Jesus, on the cross, if Jesus can pray to the Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. They, they're putting him to death and he's an innocent man. If Jesus can pray that, you can overlook somebody's momentary forgetfulness or selfishness. You can do it. I know you can. Proverbs 19 says, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, 
and his glory is to overlook a transgression. That's Proverbs 19.11. It is glory to overlook a transgression. But even admitting that, there are times where someone has injured you and you can't overlook it. The, the, the injury or the offense is so severe, you can't overlook it. Or there are times where someone is making such foolish decisions, where, where the things that they're doing and the direction they're headed is, is sending them down a path to disaster. What, what do we do then? We can't overlook it. Well, Jesus commands us to go to them and one-on-one -on -one talk about the offense between us and them alone. Ordinarily, this is effective. Ordinarily, this works. Most of the time, and you've seen this and you've, you've done this, most of the time, the thing that you're so upset about or the thing that you're offended over is a miscommunication or maybe it's a misunderstanding and it's pretty, pretty easy to clear up. You, you, you go to your brother and he says, oh man, oh my goodness, I didn't mean it like that at all or I can't, I can't believe I did that or I can't believe I said that. Please forgive me. What do I need to do to make it right? overwhelmingly, that's the response that you get. Or, or someone will say, yeah, you're right. You know what? I felt really bad when that happened. And I've been kind of simmering in grief and guilt this whole time. And I didn't know exactly how to bring it up. And I, I didn't know exactly how to address it. But thank you for bringing this to my attention. I, I, I am so sorry. Help me Help me correct this. Help me get this right. That's, that's what happens. You know, thank you for coming to me. Thank you for pointing this out. This is the kind of healthy, functional, self-correcting that we do together. And it doesn't have to be this weird, onerous, confrontational, you know, when somebody says, um, you know, I really need to meet you for lunch you know, in like three weeks, so you lose lots of nights of sleep between here and then, you know. I, I need to meet you for lunch. And what, you say, what's it about? Oh, I just, I just have some concerns. It's like, well, you know, tell me <laughs> now. I mean, we're talking now. Let me know right now. And oh, no, I, I, just, I just have some concerns. And, you know, it, it turns out to be either something that's misunderstanding or something that's just there's a misinformation. It doesn't have to be this heavy, onerous, difficult deal. You, you address it in a brotherly way, and you get on. And the, and the way we approach this is always we assume the best. You always go in assuming that you're the one who's wrong. You assume that your perception and your understanding is wrong. Uh, you give the judgment a charity. And you know what that does? It opens the other person up to the possibility that they may be wrong. It opens up the possibility that they may need to repent. This is ordinarily. This, this is the way it's supposed to work. But you always have people on both sides of the equation who assume they're never wrong, right? You, you always have the person who's pointing out a problem, assuming that there's no way I could be wrong. And there's the person who's actually messing up, who's assuming I'm not wrong. And that's where things begin to break down. And that's when you need to bring another person. So, so what is the church supposed to do when a member of the body falls into serious sin and they're not responding to that first visit or that second visit that Jesus talks about where you bring along somebody else? What happens when they're not responding to counsel or calls to repentance? Well, you go to the church. That's what Jesus says. The most loving thing that the church can do is to address it, to publicly warn the person in grievous sin. You publicly rebuke them and admonish them. And if they don't respond to that, 
then you have to put them outside of your fellowship. And Jesus says, if they don't repent at that point, they have to be, uh, put them out of the church and let them be like a heathen. Treat them like an unbeliever. And I'll, I'll say in just a few minutes what I mean by that. And I think what the scriptures mean by treating them like an unbeliever. Jesus says, treat them like, or, or, or may, them be, may they be like a heathen or a tax collector. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Let them be a heathen or a tax collector. You know what's so funny about this is Matthew wrote that gospel, right? What was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. But Matthew knows himself what a terrible reputation tax collectors had. And he knew himself what kind of work you have to do to earn somebody's trust and how easy it is to lose that trust. So Jesus, in other words, is saying, put them outside of your fellowship and don't recognize them as a Christian. And so the thrust of the scriptures, the command, the requirement of us is that we must never be too passive or too nervous or too afraid to follow the biblical course of action. Church discipline matters because the church matters. If we don't take church discipline seriously, it's because we don't take church membership seriously. Things like membership vows, faithfulness to the body, putting a high priority on the life and, and active participation in the body of the church, making the church your highest allegiance and primary community. If, if none of that matters, then church discipline doesn't matter. And, and that's another way of saying eating at the Lord's table doesn't matter. Because if you and I believe that the Lord Jesus shows up with us in the spirit, in worship every Lord's day, if Jesus is at that table, then it matters who comes to that table. And we're not going to pretend to be Christians. We're not going to be hypocrites and drag in here and come to the Lord's table with all kinds of idolatry and unconfessed sin. Again, that's a problem in Corinth. And that's a problem uh, that they were being judged for. So if it, if it matters who's at the table, um, then it matters uh, that, that we practice uh, effective and consistent church discipline. So let me get to uh, Paul's letter quickly. And I'm gonna, we're just going to walk right through chapter 5. Um, briskly. In his letter to the church at Corinth, uh, I always want to say the first letter. I think he actually wrote a previous letter because he refers to a previous letter. But if I said his second letter, you'd flip to 2 Corinthians and that would be confusing. So in the book we know as 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, Paul deals with the matter of a member of their congregation. There's a member of their congregation who's wrapped up in public shameful sin and the church isn't doing anything about it. The church is tolerating this and they're refusing to deal with it. In verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, it is actually reported. You can almost hear him, you know, like pulling his hair out. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such, such sexual immorality is, is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife, exclamation point. Do you know where Corinth was, the place where this letter was being written? Corinth was in Greece. And the Greeks tolerated a great many perversions and sexual liberties. They, they would put up with almost anything. But Paul says, there's something going on in your church that not even the Gentiles would tolerate. The Gentiles would think this is a scandal. The standards of the world are not something we ordinarily concern ourselves with, but in this case, the church is validating the city's belief that the church is less moral and less upstanding than the Greeks. And it's because of this, it's because there's a man in the church who's having a public affair. He's having a public relationship with his stepmother, with his father's wife. And the church is tolerating it. They're not doing anything about it. 
Right out of the gate, here's one reason we practice church discipline. We do it to maintain the boundaries of what it means to be a Christian. We define for the world, this is what Christians believe. This is how Christians act. If we don't set those boundaries, we allow anybody from anywhere doing anything to define what it means to be a Christian. They can just define the Christian faith however they choose. You can believe whatever, you can do whatever, and still be a Christian. And, and it's the failure of the church to set up these boundaries and keep these boundaries. It's why we have so much confusion today about what it means to be a Christian. To, the, the question, what is the Christian faith and what is the Christian mission? If you ask that question, you'll get different answers. Whether you ask a fundamentalist pastor in Memphis or a a uh, social justice hipster pastor in Atlanta, or a, or a lesbian pastorette in Portland. You're gonna get three very different answers. And it's because we have ignored the duty of discipline that we have lost our identity. And with our, our loss of identity, we've lost the gospel and we've lost any impact on this culture because we have lost our consistent witness. What does it mean to be a Christian? Whatever whatever you want and whatever you want to do. Live with your girlfriend. That's fine. You can still lead our worship band. It's all right. We've lost all of our integrity because we haven't practiced discipline. And so he continues in verse 2. <laughs> Here's what he says. It's actually reported that this is going on. Verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Here's a reason churches don't practice church discipline consistently. Paul says the church is puffed up. From the start of this letter, and you all are very familiar with 1 Corinthians. I know you've read it, and you know the opening chapters and the opening salvos. We know how image conscious the Corinthians are. They're embarrassed of Paul. Paul's this kind of rube who just fell off the turnip truck as far as they're concerned. They're not, they're not proud of him. They're very embarrassed of him. Paul is this guy with a weak voice. He leads out of weakness. He leads out of humility. Paul is nothing like the, the golden-throated orators the, the, the Greek philosophers love to, to parade out in front of him. He's nothing like that, the, the, the orators that all the Greeks gather to hear. So the, the Corinthians, you know, have, have all picked out their favorite celebrity pastors to follow, and they're divided into teams. They're prideful. They're arrogant. They're the kind of people who don't care if something is right so long as it looks right on the outside. You know, from a certain angle to certain people, as long as it looks right, we're fine. They're, they're concerned and, and they're consumed with worry over what other people think. It's, it's all about just projecting an image to them. So it wouldn't surprise me, when Paul says you're puffed up, it wouldn't surprise me if they haven't dealt with this man because he was wealthy. Or, or maybe they haven't dealt with him because he was influential or a popular person in the local community. They're proud that they have a person of this stature in their church. Maybe they brag to other people that they're friends with him. Maybe he's so wealthy he can pay their bills, and if they discipline him, they, they can't pay for, you know, they can't pay for their ministries. They can't pay their pastor. They can't, they can't pay for their, their ministry to the poor. So we better stay on his good side. We better maintain a relationship with him and not do anything to upset that. 
You remember how uh, Bill Clinton was still a member of, in, in good standing of Emanuel Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, through his entire presidency, through, throughout his all of his affairs and all of his nonsense and stuff that he admitted to, he was still a member in good standing. And, and so he could say this whole time, he could say, well, I'm, I'm a good Southern Baptist this whole time. He could, he could claim that. And the church could claim, hey, you know who's a member here, right? Bill Clinton, right? It's very possible that something like this was in play. But Paul is not going to have any of it. None of, none of these are good reasons not to exercise discipline. I'll pick up the speed here a little bit. Verse 3. For indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, I have already judged, as, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 18, which I've already referenced, um, we, we see the Lord Jesus gives us kind of a step-by-step -step process for dealing with personal offense. When, when you're offended, here's what you do. But here Paul says, the next time you get together, next Sunday when you gather for worship, item number one on your agenda is to put this person outside of your fellowship. Hand them over to Satan. Paul skips all the steps and he goes all the way to the last full measure. He goes right to excommunication. Now, is Paul ignoring the Matthew 18 process? Or, or maybe Paul is using his apostolic authority and being a little bit too heavy-handed here. Is that a possibility? Not at all. Not at all. Ordinarily, you do follow the process. But what this tells us is that church discipline is never a matter of just following the procedures. We don't just follow the procedures because not all sins are the same. Not all situations are the same. Not all people are the same. This is not a personal offense, by the way. Jesus addresses, here's what you do when there's a personal offense. If someone offends you, this is not a personal offense. This is a matter of public shame. Every day that this goes on, the name of the Lord Jesus is shamed and God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because they're putting up with this. And so Paul says, get to it, deal with it right away. Paul isn't opposing due process at all. The processes are there to protect the innocent. They're there to preserve decency and order. But in a situation like this, where there is open, obvious, high-handed, blatant, scandalous sin, and the sinner is puffed up in his sin, in a situation like that, you don't go flipping through the index of the book of church order. That's not what you do. The sinner is obstinate. He's proud. Every day that he's allowed to continue, he brings shame on the church. And so it has to be dealt with in a swift, decisive manner. And don't be afraid to do it, Paul says. Don't shrink back from this duty. He says, be bold and act. Do not fear. See, one of the other reasons I think churches are so afraid of doing discipline is because we have this false definition of love. It doesn't seem very loving to put somebody outside the church. It doesn't, it doesn't feel loving. It feels harsh and judgmental, and graceless. But why does it feel that way? It's because we've got the wrong definition of love. 
Later in the same chapter, I'm sorry, later in the same letter, Paul, Paul defines love, doesn't he? We've all heard 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But, but many would add to that, love permits all things, love tolerates all things, love affirms all things, love supports all things. But that's not there. In chapter 5, it's obvious that all these things do not fall in the definition of biblical love. It is not loving to let the offender continue in his sin unchecked. It is not loving. It is cruel. It is absolutely cruel. It is not loving to ignore it. It's not loving to overlook it. It is especially cruel to those who are being sinned against. Let's say that somebody in our church were to steal from another member, or let's say uh, someone in our church slandered another member, or, or they're just always viciously attacking another person. Failing to act against the offender out of some sense of love or some sense of tolerance or this, or this false definition of grace, failing to act is actually cruelty toward the victim. You are joining the abuser in the abuse. You are, you are joining them in hating the person that they have attacked. You are siding with the oppressor against the oppressed. See, refusal to discipline puts us on the side of the oppressor when the scriptures repeatedly call on us to stand with the oppressed. And not to pass over this too quickly, but Paul embeds in this command the hope that this action will not only be disciplinary, that it will not only offer chastisement, not only will it maintain the purity of the church, but that it will also be efficacious, that it will also be salvific to the person under discipline. He says, take this direction, take this action. Why? So that the person's soul may be saved. Here's the wonderful part about all of this. It works. You've seen it work. People repent and return to the faith. When the church faithfully exercises church discipline, it provides a pathway to reconciliation. It saves marriages, and most importantly, it saves souls. That's why it is the most loving thing you can do. It is grace to do this. It's painful, but it's loving. Surgery to remove a tumor is, is painful. It's a hassle. Recovery can take a very long time. It can be a long, grueling process to get through it. But it's not loving to leave a tumor where it can be removed. It's not gracious. It's not kind. It is cruel. The church that never disciplines is as, as inept as the surgeon who can, who can remove a tumor but who tolerates it and leaves it there. Verse 6. Paul continues, he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Just as a little leaven penetrates and affects the entire loaf of bread, so a little sin tolerated in the body affects us all. Unconfessed sin weakens all of us. Why do we stumble and fall as a body? 
Why, why doesn't it feel like we can get out of our own way sometimes? Why do we struggle? Why do the easy things seem so difficult to us? Well, one of the reasons is that we all suffer from human weakness. We all struggle in our own ways to be faithful, yes. But another major factor is unconfessed sin. If you are harboring sin in your heart, if you have set up idols that need to be knocked down, if you are keeping on life support, things that God has condemned to death, you're making all of us weak. You're hindering the work of the gospel. You're hindering the work of the Holy Spirit. You're resisting God's Holy Spirit. If you aren't confessing the things that are plaguing you, if you aren't repenting and you come to the Lord's table, you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting all of us. Later in chapter 11, Paul addresses how they're dragging in all this wickedness up to the Lord's table. And he says, this is why there are so many weak and sick among you. And some of you have fallen asleep. And what he means there is they haven't taken a nap. He says, you have died. Some of you have died because of this folly and wickedness. Discipline is a warning to us all that, that small sins um, turn into big sins. And all big sins start out as little sins. That we could all end up outside of the church, outside of the body ourselves, if we are not exercising self-discipline. In the last little section, <clears throat> Paul addresses the matter of how are we supposed to treat the person under discipline? And I'll just finish the chapter here, verse 9. Paul says, I, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet certainly I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. He says, I want to be clear. When I tell you don't keep company with fornicators, I'm not talking about the people you work with. I'm not talking about your neighbor down the street. Uh, uh, that would be impossible. It would be impossible to not keep company with idolaters or covetous people in the world. You'd, you'd have to go live in a cave. And as attractive as that sounds sometimes, to, to just take your family and just go find a cave or go to, you know, Montana somewhere and just load up on ammunition and, you know, see how long you can make it out there. As, 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 as attractive as that sounds, Paul says, that's not what I'm asking you to do. No, I don't mean cut yourself off from unbelievers in the world. What I'm telling you to do is love them, love them in the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, what I'm telling you to do is don't keep company with someone who calls himself a Christian who is practicing open, public, shameful sin and isn't repentant. That's the person I don't want you to have anything to do with. This is a good point to stop and say discipline this whole process isn't for the person who is struggling and fighting and, and trying against their sin, who's winning and winning and winning, and then they fail and they repent, and then they win, and they beat temptation, and they're making progress. Oh, they mess up, and they try. And this is not, this is for the person who has stopped fighting. This is for the person who is ignoring counsel. This is for the person who is rejecting the church. This is for the person who is at war with the peace and the purity of the church, who ignores the government of the church. It's that person we are called on to identify and say, you know what? 
we're not going to pretend any longer. I know you've got this whole thing you're pretending to do. You're pretending to be a Christian. You've got one foot in the church. You've got one foot in the world. We're done pretending. We're not pretending anymore that your behavior is the behavior of a Christian. We can't let you treat people the way that you're treating them and do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so we're going to put you outside of the church. That's, that's the scenario. That's what he's addressing. I want to look at the specific sins that he, he mentions here, the specific ones that he de- deals with. What kinds of sins fall under this? Well, he first lists the sexually immoral. This is open and obvious and blatant and flies in the face of God's order and his law. So, so put out from yourself the sexually immoral. Human sexuality is for one man and one woman within the bounds of one marriage, in the bounds of one marriage covenant, for one lifetime. That's, that's, what, that's what we're looking for. Any perversion of that must either be repented of or, or disciplined. He, he lists the covetous as well. Now, you think, I, I get the sexually immoral, but the covetous? What, what's, <laughs> that seems like an odd insertion there, covetous. Remember, you shall not covet, though, is one of the Ten Commandments. It's the Tenth Commandment. We, we think of coveting as maybe one of these minor character flaws. You know, it's just... Uh, that guy's a little greedy or maybe he's a little, you know, he just he wants a Lexus and he talks about it all the time, that kind of thing. He always talks about winning the lottery. But that's not the way the Bible treats coveting. Coveting is always listed as a major transgression of God's covenant. The covetous are those who are always pining, always clawing, always clamoring for more, more status, more respectability, more power, more authority, more respect, more influence, more money. And as a result, they're always thankless. They're always ungrateful. They're always discontent. They're never satisfied. And Paul says, don't keep company with a brother who is covetous and doesn't repent of his covetousness. Then he lists the idolater. The idolater is not just one who carves out a stone image and bows before it. He's not just one who worships a false image of God in his head, though certainly those are idolaters. But, but idolatry is a rejection of God's covenant. Idolatry is a rejection of the work of Jesus. The Old Testament prophets always frame idolatry as covenant breaking. Uh, idolatry is a transgression. It's a violation of the first two commandments also. And so Paul says, don't fellowship with the idolater. Paul mentions the reviler. What is a reviler? A reviler is a man without self-control who, who namely can't control his tongue. He can't control his behavior with how he treats other people. He injures other people with his abrasive, denigrating, insulting words. He is a verbal abuser. He tears people down with his mouth. He is an accuser of the brethren. So, Paul says, don't fellowship with him. Put him outside the body. Paul mentions also the drunkard, the man who drinks to excess, who has no self-control when it comes to alcohol. His heart is enslaved to the bottle. He's not full of the spirit. He's full of spirits. And that means that you can't trust him. You can't depend on him. Don't fellowship with him. And finally, he calls out the extortioner. The extortioner is the thief, the manipulator, the, you know, the slick salesman who's always trying to trick people out of their hard-earned money, and he doesn't deliver on what he promises. The guy who always has a scheme, who's always got a plan, you know, you go over to his house for a meal, he invites you over and he gets out this chart that, chart that has a you know, triangle on it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a pyramid scheme, you know, but it, it, it just kind of works this way. And he starts using these words. These, these guys, these con men, see churches, they see churches as target-rich environments. 
where you're naive and you're trusting because, you know, we're Christians and we all get along. We have goodwill and, and we're a little bit naive. And Paul says, don't put up with that. Don't put up with any of these, the sexually immoral, the covetous, the idolater, the reviler, the drunkard, the extortioner, put them outside the church because all of these weaken the testimony of the church. They prey on young Christians. They turn people away. They turn people astray. And, and you, you don't think that, that you can confront them. You don't think that you could live without them even if you discipline them. But Paul says you can. You can do this. You have to be strong and you have to confront them. Be courageous and keep the boundaries of the church. As far as wickedness in the world goes, Paul says, let God deal with that. God will judge the evil in the world. That isn't your jurisdiction. I want you to police the boundaries of the church. I want you to be concerned with the faithfulness and the behavior of your congregation. We always get that backwards, don't we? We always lament and grieve and we wring our hands and we click our tongues over the wickedness in the world, right? Oh, can you believe that? Oh, that's so awful. Well, what did you expect? Unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers. They don't have a rudder. They don't have a sail. What do, what do you think they're going to do? Their lives are going to reflect that. But we get all knotted up over evil in the world, and then we ignore sin in our lives, and we don't deal with open, public, blatant sins in the church. We get it backwards. Paul says, police the boundaries, police the, 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 the church, Leave the world to God. He'll judge that. And emphatically, Paul closes with this phrase. He says, put away from yourselves the evil person. There he's quoting, he's quoting a phrase that's used five times in Deuteronomy. If Israel was going to be a holy nation, they couldn't tolerate the behaviors of the pagan nations around them. There had to be a line. There had to be a bright, clear boundary. If you're going to act like a Philistine, we're going to treat you like a Philistine. If you're going to be a covenant keeper, then act like one. That's what church discipline faithfully applied does. That's what's going to help you be consistent. If you're going to act like an unbeliever, then we're going to treat you like one. Go be an unbeliever, but don't straddle the fence. And when we declare that you're an unbeliever, we're going to treat you like any other unbeliever. We're not going to shun you. We're not going to cross the street when we see you coming the other direction. We're going to love you in the name of Jesus. I want to pray for you. And we're going to trust that the Lord Jesus will change your heart and the Holy Spirit will give you a heart of faith and that you will repent. That's what we're hoping for. This matter of, of discipline, you might be sitting there thinking, oh, well, that's very interesting, but I have no influence or authority and I have no hand in this whatsoever. Church discipline is all up to the elders, right? No, no, it involves all of us because it begins with self-discipline. That's where it begins. We put ourselves in grave danger if we do not exercise self-discipline first. And then if we don't practice brother to brother, sister to sister accountability and gentle, humble correction, keeping short accounts, letting love cover offenses, if we don't do that, and then thirdly, if, if we don't do any of that, we're not going to practice uh, effective or consistent church discipline. I'm going to leave you with just one image from the Old Testament, one you're well familiar with. You remember after the great victory, the big battle of Jericho, where God gave Joshua and the armies of the Lord, he gave them this immense, uh, incredible victory, a miraculous victory over this, this fortified city of Jericho. And they were commanded that the city of Jericho is to be a whole burnt offering. Everything in the city is going to be offered to God. Don't take anything. In the other towns that you, you attack and other things that go on, you are able to take some of the spoils for yourselves and live off the land. But here, all of this goes to the Lord. Everything belongs to Yahweh. 
And then they finish that victory, they finish that battle, and they go on. The very next town they attack is this tiny little outpost, you know, this, like a trailer park called AI. And they go to attack this little town, and they get their heads handed to them. They are absolutely destroyed and dismayed by, by this. And what they find out is that we lost that battle because there's sin in the camp. Somebody had taken something that was forbidden back in the city of Jericho, and they hid it. And now there's this unconfessed, unaddressed sin, and the whole army of God's people is weakened, and we failed in this extraordinarily embarrassing fashion because there was sin in the camp. Well, once they practice discipline, once they deal with Achan, in this case, it wasn't just a church matter, it was a civil matter because uh, it required an execution. After they deal with this, they go back and they defeat Ai handily. What, what does that tell us? That tells us that if we're harboring sin, and if we are not confessing and not dealing with sins in our homes, in our hearts, in our relationships, brother to brother, sister and sister, we weaken the army of the Lord. We weaken the church. It must be dealt with. Church discipline, which starts with self-discipline, is messy, it is painful, it is difficult, it is complicated. But which church would you rather be a part of? Do you want to be part of a hypocritical church where tough things are never confronted, where tough things are never dealt with, and we just kind of put this veneer on, this appearance of good, but where behind the veneer it's all about just pretending? that everything is okay? Is that, is that the kind of community you want to be a part of? Or would you rather be in a place where, yeah, it's messy. I'll tell you what, this is complicated. Boy, this is ragged around the edges. It doesn't always look perfect. Not even close. But it's complicated and it's ragged around the edges and it doesn't look perfect because we're dealing with sin and we're serious about it. Which church pleases the Lord more? Which church will Jesus bless? Which church will Jesus remove his blessing from? People of God, put away your sins. Trust and obey the Lord Jesus. When you are corrected, listen and receive the correction with humility. It is God's grace to you. Don't be puffed up and let us live together in humility. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to correct us and to, by your Holy Spirit, uh, point out all the places where uh, we need to let go of things that are killing us and destroying us. Correct our lives, correct our homes, correct this congregation, and make us more and more like the Lord Jesus. Father, give us boldness when it comes time to exercise this authority that you have given us. May we not shrink back, but may we do what you have called us to do. And Father, may we love those that, that we've had to discipline. May we continue praying for them. And Father, we, we name them in our hearts. We pray for David and we pray for Frank. Father, change their hearts. Grant them your Holy Spirit. Give them faith and bring them back to your, your family and to your church. Father, we pray earnestly in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.